Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. With us today, we have economist Tyler Cowan from George Mason University. In addition to being an accomplished researcher in economics, Tyler is the author of several best-selling books, including The Great Stagnation and more recently, Big Business, A Love Letter to an American Anti-Hero. Tyler is the author and co-author of one of the best economics blogs out there, Marginal Revolution. He writes a weekly column in Bloomberg News and is also the host of a great podcast, Conversations with Tyler. Tyler, welcome to Policy. I'm Combs. Happy to be here. Thank you. Um, let me start by asking you a couple of questions on big business. So let's just, you know, go to the title. Like you call big business an anti-hero and, and why, what is it to love about it? Well, the big news of today when we're recording is that the American pharmaceutical company Pfizer has come up with a vaccine against COVID-19 that is more than 90% effective. That's pretty awesome. Big business did that. We're recording this over Zoom. Uh, that's a big business. Uh, Amazon, the NBA, have performed much better over the course of this pandemic than, say, the United States federal government. So I feel in our society, big business is somewhat underrated. It's underrated as an anti-hero from, from what sides? I mean, what are the parties of society that tends to be skeptical or, or critical about big business these days? Well, the progressive left, it's a major theme of their arguments is to be anti-big business. It's hard to find any cases where they will say anything nice about big business. But to be clear, often the right wing is just as guilty, just in different ways. So Donald Trump will yell at businesses, tweet at them, pick on them, uh, say they're evil, you know, media is the enemy of the people. Uh, this business can't be allowed to outsource. So the rhetoric as a whole is more pro-business but the actual behavior in many ways is just as bad and it's not respecting the underlying legal foundations that enable big business to prosper. How about us as a, as a business, us meaning universities, professors, how, what's our, our general uh, predisposition to our big business? Well, universities are among the most left-leaning institutions in American society. So their anti-big business rhetoric tends to go in the direction of the progressive left. Just business should be taxed more, should be regulated more, should have a lower overall status. Uh, for prop major problems, you look always to the government. So, uh, I mean, academia, from my point of view, is a very slanted perspective. I think and, uh, ordinary people on the street have a better sense of big business than do academics on average. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, the, the performance of big business during the pandemic, and you already alluded to it. Um, it's, been, it's been impressive to me. Uh, at first, when, when we're, we're going into the lockdowns in March, I was concerned of big disruptions in supply chains and so on, and I'm stunned by how, how smooth things were from, from, from their perspective. And uh, I don't know, do you have companies any... Companies in particular have done a phenomenal job. You know, arguably our major tech companies are the best-run, best-functioning institutions human history ever has seen. I know people can be afraid of them for that same reason, but how much they have knit us together, supply chains up and running, given us means of communicating, classes have kept on running in highly imperfect forms. I get that, my goodness, better than nothing. 
And it's been a, a relative success of adjustment. Uh, and again, most of that thanks, I think, goes to the private sector. Our government has done a pretty poor job at multiple levels. Would you say that businesses in the U.S. are are better run in some ways, or or, or do we learn anything about that during, during this crisis, or or it strikes you as no major differences across across uh, countries? There are long-standing indices of managerial quality and productivity, and the United States is a clear number one. I have not seen an empirical study across nations <clears throat> during the pandemic. It seems intuitively obvious to me, American business because it is so strong in tech, has really done remarkably well and almost certainly extended its lead in those regards. So uh, just to, to close on this one, um, the, the news of today, the, the Pfizer uh, news, but it was also a news from a, a smaller uh, 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 bio, bio company in Germany, right? Correct, founded um, by two uh, immigrants, children of Turkish guest worker parents, amazing. Amazing, right? And do you do you understand the details of where they work in, in collaboration or those, those are two separate news? I haven't kept up. No, with they them. work in collaboration. So right. Pfizer in terms of making it and distributing it is a much, much larger company and with much stronger roots in the United States. The original work and idea comes from Germany. A wonderful example of the benefits of globalization. So speaking of that, um, I guess it's a good loop in, in globalization here. You 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 were you talk about pandemic way before COVID was around us. You, you had some written about it. You had uh, examples in your book, uh, in a textbook for undergraduates on on pandemics being potentially a a counterexample to the positives of trade. Um, give me a sense of your your sort of what sparked your interest about pandemics, and what was the the reason why you were maybe thinking about this even before. Uh, all the world started you know, looking at a real problem. Well, mostly it came from studying history, right? Pandemics recur fairly regularly. So in around 2004, 2005, I wrote a long policy paper for Mercatus, what we should do to get ready for the next pandemic. And to me, this really seemed uh, quite urgent. Uh, avian flu was a possible risk at the time. But I think general knowledge of history is the key input we're very short-sighted and we have short memories. Arguably the last two pandemics, not counting HIV AIDS, which is in a somewhat separate category, but we're 1968, 1957. And it's a long time ago. People forgot and needed to be reminded. And in fact, we did screw it up badly. And uh, now at some points in time, US was ranked as the nation best ready to respond. And I guess we were on the biomedical front, but not otherwise. Yeah, it's try. It seems that uh, um, one of the one of the things that we're going to go back to COVID in a second. But but one of the things that strikes me as a, a big criticism of the U.S. is it has to do actually with our system of government of federalism, where where it becomes very difficult to coordinate a lot of these things, right? A lot of these these actions and 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 processes. If you don't have a, a clear plan ahead of time, uh, there's 50 units and perhaps even more than 50 units because when you look even within state governments. A lot of the, the public health apparatus might be in counties or might be in cities, and, and it's just it's just there was no coordination, no real ability to 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 have a, a organized plan. Um, Being a large nation, it's very hard to stop it in every place. So what New Zealand did, what Taiwan did, also shutting their borders, that worked quite well. In fact, I don't think the United States could have done the same, or Brazil for that matter. So that's our problem. We still could have done better. But we did work very hard to make up for it on the biomedical front. 
with astonishing success in terms of speed. So, so just going back to the textbook example, right? So how, how would you rate up to, uh, after our learning now and, 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 and during 2020, um, would, you, would you change at all your views on trade and immigration given uh, um, the lessons of 2020 or, or not, not really? Well, I think 2020 has shown if you're a not too large nation and you can contain the virus early, then you should shut your border. And it pains me to say that because I'm a big fan of immigration. I would gladly, you know, at least triple what were the prior levels of immigration. I still hold that view. But during a pandemic, if you can keep people out, there's a big advantage. And we saw this with Western Europe in August. People came back from vacation, significantly accelerated the spread of the virus. They have much larger problems after they thought they had it under control. Uh, I wouldn't say this is a totally new view of mine. I did suspect it was true before 2020, but seeing 2020, I'm fairly convinced that at least for a, a set of countries, uh, they need to close and lock their borders. It said very large countries, it just you know, may not work, period. You can't necessarily keep everyone out. Yeah, I think one of the only large countries that have an easier time with that would be Australia, right? Again, the, the island uh, um, exactly. helps, helps a lot. All right, so, so just wrapping up on big business, um, big tech these days, a lot in the news, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, hoopla around their, their, their managing of big media and, and so on and so forth. Um, but just a, a while back, you, you had some conversations on, on the, the, whether or not big tech was close to a monopoly or close to something that would, would deserve some sort of antitrust scrutiny. So how, how, would, would, you, how would you summarize your argument? I think it was against that, right? You, you think that that's not necessarily anywhere close to being the case that we need to be um, um, checking them for antitrust. Well, the major tech companies uh, typically have either a free product, such as Google or Facebook, or the other activity they do to generate revenue selling ads, they face a lot of competition and offer really very low prices. So I think that's the overall framing of the antitrust question. If you just ask me though a very specific question, like have Google and Apple committed particular antitrust violations? I think the odds are they have. I don't think the answer is to split them up. I don't think the answer is to have punitive penalties. I don't think you can say they're totally innocent of antitrust violations. So the way Google allows people to pay for search results or elevates its own connected businesses in search way Apple manages its app store. But my inclination is still not to actually trust the antitrust authorities to get the remedies right. But if someone says there's a case there, I mean, I would agree largely. So it depends how you, you frame it. If you think like the whole company is some big monopoly that ought to be dynamited, uh, I'm very strongly opposed. And you think that this is now something that was, uh, uh, are we, are we Moving it all that way, I, I fear that that both sides here seem to be particularly skeptical. Both sides of the political spectrum seem to be particularly skeptical of, of big tech these days. And do, do you see any movement? Um, I don't know. What's your expectation in that direction? Do you think that, that now under a new administration, we're going to be less or more aggressive towards them? Or, or Department of Justice recently filed a suit against Google, or it is there's a suit coming against Facebook. I actually think with Biden winning. Although the Democrats are more skeptical of tech intellectually, we'll have divided government. There's not the sense like, oh, tech helped Donald Trump steal the election. 
I actually think it will be this long drawn out stupid battle that won't lead to very much and that the landscape has changed. That said, once an antitrust suit is open and all the different states are in on it as well, many different things can happen. Political risk to the major tech companies does look much higher now than it did say a year ago. Uh, my best guess would be either the government doesn't win the lawsuits or they settle in a fairly quiet way or the thing drags on and is ugly but doesn't fundamentally change the sector. And their share prices reflect that in the last week or two. That's right, that's right. Um, uh, let's change gears here to talk a little bit about, about progress studies. A little, a little over a year ago, you wrote a piece in The Atlantic with Patrick Collison, uh, co-founder and CEO of Stripe, argued that we need a, a new science, a new science of progress. And, and what do you mean by that? Well, as you're an academic yourself, as you know, so much of academic research is to carve out a small piece of territory that will get you good enough letters to get tenure and no one will really object to. I would like to see fewer people do that and to produce synthetic knowledge that has direct practical value. And say within economics, my field, I think the field economics of science, right now it's not one of the top 20 fields. I'm not sure it's one of the top 40. I think it should be one of the top three fields, say. Uh, that to me would be progress studies. So people can point and say, oh, this person's doing this, that person's doing that. That's true, but there needs to be a fundamental ele elevation and revaluation of research work relevant to progress. I think we're actually starting to see some of that, uh, but I'd like to see a lot more. So when you, when you, when you, say, when you say studies related to progress, just like uh, uh, trying to understand the cause and effect, and, and effect of, of the progress that we have experienced or... or, or... Right. So every economist, in my opinion, should spend a fair amount of time studying what caused the Industrial Revolution and what caused the East Asian economic growth miracles. It's not that I feel I have the answers or that everyone has to agree. Those are now topics that many people study, many people don't think about much at all. To me, those should be totally central to the curriculum. And and so so do you, do you, you've Blame economics for not being paying attention to this or other social science as well. It strikes me a lot of social science, including economics these days, have a tendency to try to focus on problems, trying to understand, oh, we have a problem here. Let's try to understand the causes of that problem. We have another problem there. Let's try to understand the cause of that problem as opposed to, to look for the big picture of like, well, we have a lot of good things that happen. Let's understand the reasons why the good things have happened. Would you agree with that, that general assessment? Uh, yes, I know economics better than any other field, of course. But my sense from what I know is all of the social sciences have this problem. And, uh, now, there's plenty, in fact, on sociology of science, as you can see. If you want to, say, read a good book on how could we improve National Institute's health, uh, health, that's very hard to do. It's not the kind of question people work on. So that, to me, is deeply strange. And do you, do you think that that somehow relates to the, the, our lack of understanding of progress is potentially one of the reasons why productivity has been decaying? I mean, maybe that's a bigger question. Right? Productivity, you write about productivity decays not only in, in, in academic space, but I think in academic space, something that you worry a lot about as well, right? You, 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 um, um, could that sure, be a Government science policy could be better. Regulatory policy could be better. Uh, I'm very a move to see how rapidly we made progress on a vaccine. 
that to me is one sign things are turning around. Government did actually call in Nobel laureate Michael Kramer and ask him, well, tell us how to get a good vaccine quickly. And he told them, and they basically did what he recommended. So we are seeing some very positive signs. And I give Michael Kramer a lot of credit for having worked on that to begin with. So it's not all doom and gloom on the research front. Uh, but again, I would like to see most academics work on problems of progress, whereas now it's still a minority. So let me give you, give you an example of something that I do here at UT. Um, I teach a class where, where it's a class about policies, evaluating policies, and that's like the, you know, the slogan of our, of our center here, is always trying to understand trade-offs about, about changes. And, and, but it's, this is a class to freshmen. So, so they come in and, and, and uh, I try to talk to them about the fact that a policy is an attempt to change the world around you. Uh, for you to change the world around you is important to understand where you are uh, and, and understand the, the facts around you right now. So we, we start by talking about progress, about, about exactly the, 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 the sort of hockey stick, right? A whole human, human progress since the, the, the industrial revolution. But even before I start talking about that, I have a survey with them where I ask a bunch of questions about, about state of the world. And, and, you know, this is not something new. You know this by lots of other people have worked on it, and like Hans Rosling and some others, to demonstrate that people have a very doom and gloom view of the world. They don't understand that things are much better than they actually think it, they are right now. Um, and and that's, all, that's all fine. We understand that. We, and it's, it's kind of nice to have the contrast of, okay, here's what you think, and here's what reality is. And students get you know a, a good reaction out of that, um, but my my one of the concerns I have, and I don't know if you share, is that that is a different. It's very rare in the experience that they will have at universities these days. I think the students are going to come in, and and the sort of like doom and gloom view of the world is going to be emphasized in a lot of their the classes that they will uh, be taking, and and a lot of the rhetoric of, uh, around the university. In particular, I think uh, uh, the notion around critical race theory. It's somewhat incompatible with the notion of progress studies that you describe and you think about. I don't know, have you thought about that? Have you thought about that general aspect uh, of, of the social sciences? How does that play a role with our students? You know, I think progress studies is a very different emphasis from a lot of what goes on in the humanities. I would stress, I do see plenty of room in progress studies for people to study what you might call racial progress using rigorous social science. I'm all for that. Uh, Critical race theory to me seems like a less constructive emphasis. So, you know, that would be another area. That should be part of the picture, you know, not something outside of it. So we've been talking about scientific progress, but it's not the only form of progress, right? right. Progress in discourse, progress in gender relations, progress in race relations, many other areas. One thing I always loved about Brazil, I know it's not exactly where the country is at right now, but your motto, I mean, how is it you say it in Portuguese? Ordem e progresso. You say it properly. Say it. Ordem e progresso. Yes, and what does that mean in English? So, it means order and progress, which, by the way, uh, my wife, she's an American, she, she's like, oh, my God, that's the most fascist thing I've ever heard in my life. So she thinks it's a fascist model. <laughs> but, uh, but I can see, I understand. Go ahead. Brazil, early in the 20th century, fell in love with modernism. Not always its better sides. There was too much August Comte, right. Brazilian mentality. But this idea that it was a nation committed to progress, you do see in like the dams, the scale and scope of building, the ambition of what the country can be, 
It doesn't always work out well. I get that. But uh, I've long admired that side of Brazil without wanting to embrace every part of how Brazil has done it. We used to call the Brazil the country of the future, and we, you know, the future never arrived for us. That's that's one of the, the problems we face. But we still are the, the country of the future. Um, at least it used to be a thing that people say in, in Brazil quite a lot. Um, all right, let's turn to the pandemic now. And and first of all, let me let me thank you uh, for the amazing coverage that Marginal Revolution has had uh, in terms of just so much good good stuff there and learning a lot about what was happening in the world following through 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 your work with, with Alex. Yeah. It's been really great. Um, but I want to get back to March and, and I'm, you know, I was looking forward to having this conversation with you because I was a little bit surprised by your, I guess, I guess if I were to predict your reaction to what we saw in March in terms of government interventions, I'll be surpri I was surprised that you were less skeptical of their value than, than you were uh, quickly. So help me understand your, your, your thinking through that, thinking through what we saw in March, what are the things that you're looking at, what are, were the, the, the initial maybe epidemiological models, what are the, the evidence that you're looking at that made you so convinced or, or, or more convinced that uh, the strong actions that governments were taking were, were somewhat justified and, and, and warranted? Well, I don't think all of those actions were warranted, just to be clear. Uh, but keep in mind, back in March, we understood much, much less about COVID-19 than we do now. So just to mitigate risk, I thought that was a case for locking down many things, not all things, we had seen two particular cases. One was Wuhan, China, where the number of deaths was, was very, very high. And the city completely had to grind to a halt. And then there was Northern Italy, where again, you had a much higher death rate than what we've seen since then. And the beginnings of the problem in the US came to the New York City area, where again, the death rate was quite elevated. And I thought, and still think, at, at that time in March, the idea of locking down a significant fraction of human-to-human -human interactions through the business sphere was the right thing to do. I think if New York City had done that two weeks earlier, we would right now be in a much, much better position with many fewer casualties, much less spread, uh, much less political disruption. And the northeast of this country didn't lock down soon enough. But there were all kinds of crazy overreach, like, oh, you can't go to the park. And even then, it was clear to me, we didn't know now what we know about outside being relatively safe. But, you know, people going to the park is an outlet. It will stop them from doing other more dangerous things. So we way overreacted. That general kind of response, I still think, was the right thing to do. And it helped us buy time. During that time, we learned what is more safe, what is less safe. And when we reopened, uh, you know, we managed okay. Not as well as we could have, not enough testing, but we did manage in some manner. So, so let me, I guess, you, you know, when you say the, the, the actions that, were, the, the, that we saw in March, uh, the more aggressive actions, maybe it should have come a little earlier, especially in the Northeast once, once uh, um, um, and, but the, so you would agree that those temporary measures that allowed us to learn a little bit uh, gave us some time to to prepare. Do you think the timing of them in terms of the, because one of the things that I, I observe is that there's geographic variation in, in when the pandemic hit certain places, right? But we sort of all went into a panic and lock it down at the same time. So I think there was a lot of damage that was done by Texas, for example, locking down in early mid-March, where it wasn't here yet. We just didn't have enough of a spread here. So 
So that created, for example, the fatigue of six weeks later, we're like, well, we need to do something else. And we open, and then of course it hits us because it, it, you know, this thing is already everywhere. There's no stopping from getting to Texas in a way that, that uh, so then we have our wave in the summer that was pretty bad, and, and, but somewhat managed under, without, without any other extreme lockdown. So um, much of the country locked down too early, and the Northeast clearly locked down too late. That's how I would put it. But wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that it was almost impossible to know when to do it? It was like, it, it, we don't have the models. Um, but that's why I want to touch on, on, the, on, the, on the epidemiology here. There was a, a lot of quick trust given to a set of scientists that, quite honestly, and I think you rated them quite poorly <laughs> in your writings as well, that were just not ready for it. They didn't have the right models. They had models that were, you know, cartoonish in some ways. Uh, that did not really help public policy in any meaningful way. Sure, but you know, I wrote at the time, most of the country is locking down too early. So I don't think it was impossible to know that. And if we had taken that first two months and used it to build up testing capacity, it would have been quite easy to know when different places should lock down. I don't think one should infer from all this, well, the whole lockdown was a mistake. We did many parts of it badly. We could have done it much better obviously with more testing, but even just more common sense. And uh, it's not what we got. And I agree about lockdown fatigue completely. So at the time these places maybe should have been locked down, they were like, gee, we did this four or five weeks. We lost a lot of jobs. We got nothing. We still don't see any virus. We're not going to keep on going. Uh, That's understandable. Right. And that that, that I think think created a whole problem of of any kind of a attempt to do something later would be very difficult, right? Because the, the prescription of that policy in the first place didn't do anything um, other than harm. Mexico, yeah, Mexico is a country that didn't really lock down at all. And their casualty rate is very, very high. So again, I think some degree of lockdown was called for. I wouldn't, even the bad way we did it, I wouldn't trade in our response for that of Mexico. Brazil also had trouble, as you know. Yeah, but I actually think Brazil is, is in some ways um, um, did somewhat relatively the same as, as the U.S., and, uh, which is striking to me that, that a country that starts with a much lower, much lower health status and you know, doesn't have as good hospitals, doesn't have enough healthcare capacity, has been able to manage uh, uh, at the same level of, 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 of death per capita, I suppose. Uh, you have no winter, right, practically speaking. We have no winter, practically speaking. That's right. That's right. And we had our worst problems in a coldish part of the country when it was still quite cold. So the seasonal variable, in retrospect, seems more important. People mentioned this at the time, but it does seem a bigger deal. All right. So you think that the, the surge that we're seeing right now is mostly mostly coming from that? Uh, the surge in the United States, yes. Yeah, then Europe is... Uh, it's weakest in the South. But the European surge, it's seasonal, but for a different reason. I think it's August vacations and subsequent spread rather than not necessarily being cold. The European Mediterranean is not really that cold right now. Parts of it are having very severe problems and that seems to come from vacationing. And do you, how, do you, how do you look at what the UK is doing right now and what other parts of Europe? Do you think that their lockdowns are still the, 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 right, the right prescription? Uh, they're locking down too many things too severely. Again, it depends exactly where you mean. So you say the UK, but Scotland and England are themselves in very different positions. London and the North are in very different positions. If someone says Liverpool needs a pretty serious lockdown, I'm inclined to agree. 
It doesn't mean the whole country should lock down everything, and Scotland probably shouldn't lock down much at all. So it's really a, a very finely grained uh, set of decisions, which most countries have not done so well with. Right, they've been too blunt and 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 too centralized in some ways, right? Not not taking advantage of the information locally. So, um, would you say that the U.S. again, going back to our discussion on federalism, that maybe the 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 lack of of um, coordination might have hurt us, but perhaps the lack of coordination also gives us the ability to do the implementation of these policies in different ways in different times, potentially if needed. Yes, I think our response in the long view of history will look somewhat better than it does right now. That's interesting. Um, now, now, let me ask you about economists during this time. Uh, you saw a lot of a flurry of papers uh, by economists early on uh, papers on trying to use a lot of the, I mean, the, if you look at epidemiological models, they're, they're, they're not very different in the use of partial differential equations, for example, than, than a lot of economists use in, in macro, for, for that matter. So you saw a lot of macroeconomists writing papers uh, early on trying to modify the models that were, were, were being put forward by epidemiologists. And, and so that was kind of a positive thing. I think the field of economics came to, to, to the help of this new problem that not, not a lot of people thought about. And, and provide a good knowledge. Now, I don't see those papers or that knowledge really being, being put forward in front of policymakers. I, I think that the, the, the epidemiologists that were the first ones that policymakers talked to are the ones that are talking to them right now still. For whatever reason, they are the experts and, and they're the only ones the, the, the policymakers look to. Um, so how would you rate the response by the profession, by the economics profession on, on so that was a positive, I would say, but I think that they have been not as vocal or as participant in the, in the decision-making process as I would, I would have hoped. I don't, know if I don't think those papers have had impact, you know, as you were saying. I think the problem is, is fundamental. I guess I do blame the profession as I would blame epidemiologists. The key decisions are about what we would call public choice. Like what will people actually put up with? Right. Is this sustainable? So you can solve for the optimal whatever, you know, at the wazoo if you don't have a sustainable plan, people will rebel against it, as they did in Europe, as they did in many parts of this country, not Vermont, I get that. Uh, so it should have been public choice economists doing the work. So I don't think our response on that was helpful. It was not worse than the epidemiologists. The really helpful response was the work Michael Kramer and his team had been doing for some time on advanced market commitment. And that was like an A double plus home run. And we're seeing the benefits now with the new vaccines. So the, the I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about somebody that I thought that has, has been doing good work, but I don't think has had the impact that I respected Emily, Emily Oster on the work that she's been doing on, on schools, uh, trying to, to point out the, the high trade-off that we're paying here, the price that we're paying on, on having schools closed, for example, and, and the, the, the sort of data so suggesting that the impact of schools open, openings are not particularly bad on the, 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 the dynamics of the pandemic. Um, but I, I just, I just felt that the profession as a whole did not spend enough time trying to make the exact same case that she was making, at least for the things, the area of study that she's sort of focused a lot on, right? Children and, 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 and raising children, et cetera. So, um, I, I like Emily's work on that. I'm not convinced we currently know the final answer. 
Oh, I, 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 I agree that we don't know the answer, uh, but we do at least have some information that, I mean, I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe I am too skeptical of, of the value of, uh, of, of lockdown, in particular for younger, for younger folks, but um, I think we learned some, some lessons throughout the process. I think there's variation already on school openings versus school closings. There's variation on what universities did. And we observed that the variation doesn't seem to correlate very strongly with any, you know, any, any big improvement or big, big, big worsening. I think that there, a lot of it happens the way it's gonna happen and we don't have much control over it. So the attempt at least to put that information together, even though I agree with you that we don't know, we don't know the, final, the final answer, uh, will be very helpful to help mitigate the process. And I don't think we saw enough of that coming from the econ profession. I looked at all of that work. I advised my own university to stay open in hybrid fashion. We did, it's actually gone pretty well. So, I mean, that's my inclination, but still, I think uh, we will know much more, say two years from now. That's true. <laughs> Once everybody's vaccinated and we are, we are exactly. Finished. Yes. Uh, the other thing that I like, I like to, to bring up is that you, you made a, a, a prediction, I suppose, you called that we're gonna go into a yo-yo model. I think you're pretty right. I think you just got it. Got it to be what we we end up ending up here, right? Uh, of this this cycles of of the virus coming in and and a little bit of locking down and then opening up and and but um, the very beginning without the massive testing process, nobody seems to be actually have to be able uh, being capable of doing in a way the the test and contact trace necessary to really put a lid on the on the pandemic. Um, it was almost like unavoidable, right? You're going to lock down, you're going to open it up because nobody can stay locked down for that long. It's going to come back, you're going to lock down again, and we're seeing these waves coming in. Um, what, what do you think could have, is poss would have been possible, really, to have accomplished to avoid this? Uh, um, assume we did the right thing and locking down in the, in the first place uh, at the right timing. Uh, do you think it would have been possible to have uh, effective testing and t contact tracing done uh, through the government uh, in order to, 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 to have this been a better, a better outcome at the end. We could have had more rapid tests more quickly, if, excuse my sneeze, if not for government regulators. I mean, the tests are still there and not approved. So we could have done much better. Now contact tracing certainly can name countries where it has worked. I tend to doubt it could have worked that much better in this country or in say England. So I'm forward in the abstract. It's not a thing I've been pushing for the United States. It's just culturally very alien to us and people are not inclined to cooperate. You can cite the, the successes and you know I'll acknowledge that. So I just think more rapid fire testing, including at home, could have made a big difference. Even on the yo-yo, I've been a little surprised and how much risk people are willing to bear. I thought everyone would be just a bit more terrified and more staying at home. And about that, I don't think I ever wrote down my prediction. I know mentally what it was, and on that I've been wrong. Interesting. So, um, um, so you think, you think it, it, it's the, the, let's say a college student, do you think that they are being too uh, risk tolerant? Well, it depends how they're behaving. So there is some oh, the, the typical one that you're seeing out there. They seem to be going to parties. They don't say, I, mean, I don't think that there is a, 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 a big change in behavior on, on those students for the most part. I think that's both a prudential and a moral mistake. 
It's a moral mistake because it's unlikely they're totally segregated from older people. It's a prudential mistake. And I know people who've been hit by this. There is a, a chance of long-term damage. I'm not sure what that chance is. Look, a vaccine is coming just to say to yourself, I'm going to have, you know, eight or nine months of my life where I either don't party or I only party with people who are very safe and I'm very close to. Like, is that so hard? You know, would people in 1957 have found that so impossible? But to me, it's a kind of social deterioration. How poorly we've formed on that. Just a, a wide scale ignoring what should be a stronger social norm. Um, all right, so moving forward, what, what, what's happening? What's happening next? Do you think that this is it? The vaccine is going to come in in a month. We're going to start vaccinate, getting vaccinated and we're out of the woods in a couple of months or? Uh, no, not a couple of months. Uh, the question is how rapidly delivery and distribution will go. Given our performance so far, it probably will take somewhat longer than people are thinking. So, you know, maybe kind of normal Americans are starting to get vaccinated in March, which is more than a couple of months. It's within sight. And then how many people will want it? How long will it take? How will the cold storage facilities work? There are still major, major challenges. This is a very definite turning point. To think that an awful lot of things will be normal by September is, while not a certainty, it's the best default assumption. Someone just invited me to give a talk in Wyoming in late September. I'll think about whether or not I'll do it. But, uh, COVID, if I say no, it won't be because of COVID. So, so in that, in that, I actually didn't have that question, but you mentioned this, and I, I think this is a good point. Do you think we're going to see a big change in our business uh, now, individuals, in particular universities, and going around giving talks? Um, I find it what we're doing here today. You're, you're, visit, you're visiting us, you know, uh, at Texas. Of course, we're missing a big part of that. Those interactions. It'd be nice to have you here, have you go to lunch with us, talk privately, and so on. Uh, but the, the, I think we quickly turn into this model where we have these conversations over, over online. You're going to give a talk online this afternoon and, and lots of people can show up and watch later because it's recorded. Um, do you see a big change coming our way? I mean, that's sort of like permanent changes uh, staying. Um, I see a big permanent change. If you mean business travel, business conferences, and academic talks, I think at least a third of the physical travel will never come back. And uh, that's a lot. How about I think ultimately for the better. I'm not saying it's for the better right now, but you'll, you'll have greater choice. So people who want to travel can travel. It'll be easier on departmental budgets. And you'll have these other people like we all know Zoom. and No one will think it's weird. And you'll have all these great Zoom talks. So it, it will have ended up as, as a pretty wonderful adjustment. And uh, how about how about the teaching side of it? Um, you you mentioned you mentioned uh, the you know the adjustment wasn't of course perfect. We're giving something up, but you also have been a big proponent and investor, not, not investor uh, financially. I don't know, but like uh, you've been putting a lot of time and effort into online education through Margin Revolution University and and the resources associated with your book and so on. Uh, do you see this this being like a shock that is going to basically demonstrate that listen, this works and we can do a lot more with Correct. the levels. And again, I don't think face-to-face -face will disappear at all. If you do 25, 30% of your degree online and you live on campus and you have all those other benefits and you get to know your professors, that will be the world to come. And again, I think 
after some while, it will be clearly better than what we had been doing. I just fear that universities are so conservative and, and, and so tied to the ways they do things that it's going to be, they're going to fight it off. Our administrators are going to be fighting it off any kind of a movement in that direction. But, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that at least I've learned that I can do a lot of different things in my teaching that uh, can be complemented and improved by, by the online. So, A lot of these schools, I don't know about yours, mine actually is fine, but a lot of them are strapped for money. So when there's a cheaper Zoom alternative, I mean, they're conservative, they're terrible, they're bureaucratic, it's all true. At the end of the day, this forced their hand. And then the fiscal constraint, it's gonna stick some of it. That's true, that is true. Uh, all right, before we wrap up, I have to, I mentioned my wife earlier, she's a big fan. She made me promise that I would do a round of underrated, overrated with you. Of course. Is that okay? All right. Absolutely. <laughs> all right, so we'll start with a tough one, climate change. Well, you need to specify what okay. exactly the question is. The risks of it are still underrated, if that's what you mean. Because I think the pandemic has shown we're fools in how we respond to crises. So whatever you think of the objective data, I would say the human response as a problem is still underrated. We're not going to respond, respond optimally. So I say underrated as a problem. Underrated as a problem. Um, okay, let me try to be more specific. If, if you look at the, the Peguvian tax, that we should be posing on, on carbon in order to, to solve this externality. Overrated. Uh, overrated, okay. Look how much progress we've seen, like electric cars, Tesla, solar, battery, without much in the way of carbon tax. Like you can either do it or you can't. And yes, as an economist, I believe in elasticities. In this particular case, I think they're somewhat overrated. I'm fine with the carbon tax. I don't think it's a difference maker. Not a thing to go to the mat for. It's a marginal improvement. At the end of the day, I think we'll do most of it without a carbon tax. Brazilian food. Brazilian food is one of the world's greatest glories. Pork and beans dishes of like Mines might be my favorite. Meat in southern Brazil, I think, is better than Argentina. Even to something you wouldn't think, like the sushi in Rio or the Italian food in Sao Paulo like a double plus world class so it's one of the great parts of the world in which to eat i love palm oil moqueca you know from the northeast like where where does one stop just like the oranges the fruits the manioc flour sandwiches my goodness so many glories in brazilian food maybe even underrated by brazilians i, I, I would i would like agree. that answer <laughs> i love that answer i love that i thought that you'd be you'd be you like know, oh you understand how, how vast and, 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 and variety, the number of variety of foods we have. And that, that's really great to, to, to order in progress, right? You see it in the cuisine. <laughs> exactly. All right. Northern Virginia. Uh, drastically underrated. So you can still afford to live here. Winter isn't that cold. You have three airports, incredible, amazing ethnic food with great diversity. Uh, you're near Washington, but also away from it. There's so many trees here. You can buy like a very nice home, clearly under a million dollars, in a way you cannot in New York or California or, or Boston. So I think it's, at least for me, the best place in the world to live. But not just for me. The nice things it has, it has wonderful parks, public libraries. Uh, it's hard to beat. Texas. Mine here is pretty reasonable, pretty low. Te sorry, Texas. 
I'm not sure if it's underrated anymore. I mean, it's been underrated. I wrote this big story that was on the cover of Time magazine, predicting what a bright future Texas would have. When was that? I don't think I read that one. What? It was like eight years ago. I'm not sure. And oh, you just look how many cities Texas has that are growing like crazy. Uh, but it seems to me by now this is well known. It's become properly rated. But the bullish story is still true. Like, I'm not repudiating that. It's just so obvious everyone knows it. So finally, getting rated on marginal revolution. Getting rated on marginal revolution. I think it's underrated. Like Steve Levitt once told me, the one thing that did the most to sell copies of free economics would be marginal revolution covering it. So I'm not sure everyone knows that, uh, but it really goes a long way, publicity on marginal revolution. Well, People I can tell. have no business being nice to me or nice to me. So maybe actually it's overrated. They're like people who are like tenured at Harvard, they're working harder to be nice to me than I am to be nice to them. What does that tell you? It's weird. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I can tell you that my highlight of my of my 2020 had been being called excellent in marginal revolution. Not by you, by Alex, but that was that was uh, definitely a highlight of my career. So I well, think <laughs> I think it's underrated. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, Tyler. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, look forward to your talk this afternoon. Catch you later today. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 